Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week we return to the continuing crisis in Hong Kong, now spilling into protests in Australia. We look at the latest humiliating loss for our corporate regulator in the context of the Banking Royal Commission. And we look at the greatest real estate deal in history. Donald Trump wants to buy Greenland. What's all that about? As always, we close with our Books and Cultures segment, First up, there's a remarkable novel about China written by someone safely living in London, a serious take on Toy Story 4, a reflection on the Ashes series and the story of Steve Smith, and finally, an old classic of Freedom by Karl Popper, The Open Society and Its Enemies. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review. Very pleased to welcome back to the IPA studio my co-host, Dr Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Uh, back from RMIT Business in... In Hong Kong and China, which I will get to in a second. Well, that's very handy, because that's exactly what we're going to be talking about. Also have with me the IPA's Director of Research, Dan Wild. Good day. Good to have you back, Dan. Thank you. And also welcoming back our resident historian and research fellow in our Foundations of Western Civilization program, Dr. Zachary Gorman. Hello. It's great to have you, Zach. Don't forget this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a supporter, please do go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or donate or just have a look at some of our fabulous research while you're there. First up, uh, unless you've been living under a rock, you will know that there have been a remarkable series of protests in Hong Kong, the most recent one, some estimated at 1.7 million people out on the streets exercising their freedom of assembly. Uh, Chris Berg. That is 1.7 million people out of a population of 7.4 million people. So it is an extraordinary um, outpouring. It was a peaceful protest. So this protest happened over the weekend. It was a peaceful protest. It seems to have been a decision made by the Hong Kong protesters to very clearly move away from um, or or, or repudiate some of the more um, contentious scenes that were seen at the airport. So it's a change of strategy in that sense. But it also shows that after the airport protests, Um, last week that the Hong Kong protests aren't dying down at all. Now, I was in Hong Kong on uh, last Monday. I actually landed at 4.30 a.m. and on the day that the airport was closed that evening. So I got through the airport absolutely fine. But I was there on, as you said, RMIT business. So I'm working with um, an organisation called the Worldwide Blockchain Innovation Association run by a friend of ours at the IPA, Stuart Eaton, former IPA um, uh, a staff member, um, and we were in Hong Kong talking to a lot of um, Hong Kongers and a lot of um, expats that were there, uh, and and then we went from there into China, first into Shenzhen and into Chongqing. So I got a really good read on what these very diverse communities are thinking about um, the Hong Kong uh, protest and, in fact, about the future of China. Um, so the big thing that I, I sort of want to start with is is that big difference between the way the mainland Chinese are thinking about this and the way people in Hong Kong are thinking about this. So my best read of it is that the mainland Chinese people are, or or the ones I spoke to anyway, are thinking about it as well. Hong Kong is a Chinese city. And if a Chinese city has a anti-government protest, then, then that could harm Chinese power and the rest of the other mainland Chinese cities, because Hong Kong is no different from anywhere else. Technically, it's got some governance differences, but it's just another Chinese city. The Hong Kongers, of course, don't view it that way at all. 
So the Hong Kongers view themselves as a independent or different city. They're not part of mainland China. And, and I've pulled up um, some of, there was a Hong Kong public opinion survey that said that 20, only 27% of those surveyed last month, so the last month in um, July, felt proud of being about being a Chinese citizen. Now, to the extent that this is a, the, a impenetrable divide, then it's really unclear to see how either side can a back down or how any accommodation can be made. Yeah, it's it's it is um, it's a long term thing, which is not really about sovereignty. I mean, the, you know, we I think most listeners will be familiar with the story about the the handover to China and the one country two systems. But you know, for me, it's about the power of ideas that have been unleashed in Hong Kong. It's not about whether you're ethnically Chinese and um, um, uh, were descended from the original sort of Cantonese inhabitants or maybe from, you know, later migrations from other parts of China or other parts of the world. It's really the, the power of the ideas uh, that the British left behind around around freedom, not so much democracy. They, they pulled, pulled short of that while they were governing and, and in the handover, but certainly there are freedoms there and uh, we've seen the protesters uh, waving... Uh, American flags, talking about various uh, freedoms uh, uh, just as, as symbols and probably to get on American TV as well. But um, <laughs> th- these are ideas which, you know, once let out of the box are very, very hard uh, to be put back in there other, other than in, you know, very not very pretty ways. Zach, what's your take? I mean, so this is, th- th- this is obviously a complex combination of a legacy of colonial rule and an independent Hong Kong identity. Well, um, the Chinese position is that they're just trying to maintain the one country, two systems um, policy, but it seems increasingly the case that they don't actually want two systems. So these protests obviously started over the extradition bill, and the reason that the extradition bill was so um, provocative and um, created such a backlash was because the rule of law ultimately exists in Hong Kong, and the rule of law does not exist on in mainland China. Well, you, you say that, but you read the so um, I read a very interesting piece by a group of mainland Chinese academics who were talking through the the sort of state position, and that is precisely what they say I, they are defending. So they will argue that they are defending the rule of law by, um, or the police are defending the rule of law by preventing unpermitted protests from occurring. Well, it depends what you mean by the rule of law because the Hong Kong people are obviously interpreting the rule of law through that sort of British lens. Uh, I think Britain did Hong Kong uh, a disservice. Um, It was already mentioned that Hong Kong, even under British rule, was never fully democratised. And one of the main reasons that that happened was because the British bowed into Chinese pressure. The Chinese government, even when... Britain still controlled Hong Kong, didn't want Hong Kong being democratised because they knew that when they took it back over, it would be, become so much more difficult to fully control. I think, also, uh, Chris, I'd also dispute, or, or I think we need to be very careful when you start quoting, uh, say, mainland academics talking about the rule of law. And um, I have studied this in the in the past. Um, the, the tradition of Chinese legalism um, is essentially that... Uh, you know, the, the, which goes back to the ages of the emperors and, and is now also suits the, um, uh, the Leninist rulers of China. It's um, so long as you act within the law and the law is whatever 
uh, is the law as passed. It's not nested in a, I guess, a broader understanding of the rule of law as uh, encompassing individual rights, uh, the role of the citizen against the state, some some fundamental and inalienable freedoms. And and um, in some ways, what we've seen in China uh, is. Uh, is an outgrowth of that. So there's been some uh, rendition of, of, of Hong Kong citizens back to back to China extra legally, and it, to the Chinese, this is outside their own tradition of legalism. So they want to pass a law to allow extraditions. Uh, they were doing the same thing with the uh, the Uyghurs in the Western Province. Uh, some extra legal uh, persecution of the Uyghurs. So they've pu- now passed laws enabling them to put a million people into re-education camps. So. When Chinese academics say that they are all about the rule of law, they are right if you are thinking of rule Chinese of law. Chinese rule of law, yeah. A I mean, Chinese these, these version of the rule of law. These academics are probably batting for the CCP. Oh, not, of course they are. Let's not think they that they're you know, <laughs> providing it. They're just running the line. Um, and that's that's kind of the broader point to to what China's doing. It's uh, The CCP sticks behind you know, everything that goes on in China. And uh, I think you make a good point drawing on the history of China, Scott, because... China is a sort of a 5,000-year-old civilization with its own sort of unique culture and way of life and way of doing things. Now, I think there's a broader question as to whether or not the, the model of uh, Stalin-Leninist Maoism that's being practiced by Xi Jinping and that kind of um, authoritarian component of the ruling class is compatible with that long-term civilizational trajectory of China. Um, but the, the other point I want to make is it's, we tend to look at, I think, China and the CCP as a monolithic beast, But like all massive bureaucracies, there are different factions within the CCP. There are people within there that want to reform and liberalise China. We saw that with Deng Xiaoping in 1979. Um, At the moment, it's it's clear that there's a fairly hardcore um, authoritarian Maoist um, rulers and dictators that are in there that have most of the command and the control. Um, But it would be wrong to think that they control absolutely everything that's happening within the the party and the CCP. There's always warring factions. But um, I think it's a broader challenge about what is going on with China in a broader historical context. Yeah, and in in that sense, the... um, And I'd like to come to to the the general trajectories of China in a moment. But I think in the case of Hong Kong specifically, the, the elephant in the room per se is Taiwan. So if Hong Kong demonstrates, or if the Chinese demonstrate, or the Chinese mainlanders demonstrate that they can't act in Hong Kong without, you know, serious either bloodshed or harm to Hong Kong's traditions, which is the English rule of law and so forth, if they demonstrate that they can't do that, that is devastating for them in their ongoing dispute with Taiwan because, of course, Taiwanese politics itself has pro and anti-China factions and there's an election coming up, I think it's next year, in Taiwan, that this dispute is going to be played out again. And if Taiwan, if the mainland Chinese state wants to bring Taiwan back into the fold, then the Taiwanese are going to be looking precisely at what happens in Hong Kong um, uh, to to justify that, I, I also want to add to the point about I, I think the um, decision that the English made not to democratize um, Hong Kong was an absolute catastrophe, um, in the sense that they tried to do it in the last couple of minutes of British rule in Hong Kong and did so in an obviously hypocritical way and an obviously failed way to the extent that one of the big proposals and the big demands of the Hong Kong protesters is precisely we want democracy. We want the universal suffrage that we should have received under British colonial rule, but because of just just British blindness, they haven't haven't delivered us. Indeed. Um, 
I just want to go back to what Daniel was talking about, the 5,000-year-old the uh, civilization. We'll provide a link on our website to a, a remarkable speech given by uh, John Garno, uh, formerly a Fairfax uh, correspondent, uh, fluent Mandarin speaker in, in China, spent a lot of time there, uh, and later advised the Turnbull government. And we now have uh, the text of a speech he gave to a inside, uh, group of government insiders in 2017, uh, which is quite remarkable about how he's saying that they essentially have... Uh, the Chinese Communist Party, and particularly under Xi Jinping, uh, has grafted uh, Marxist-Leninist ideology onto the ancient classical Chinese dynastic system. There is a, a fusion, uh, if you like, that has taken place. And, um, and, and this is now more and more explicit because Xi Jinping has reinvigorated ideology as, as, a, as a thing to be proud of. It's, uh, you know, it's overturning the, the pragmatic sort of tradition that uh, Deng Xiaoping had uh, and he also uh, highly commend this this speech very very thoughtful um, saying that it wasn't just uh, Marxist Leninism it was as mediated by Stalin um, is is really the the guiding light uh, for the party so that how all this plays you know they really can play a long game here of course the um, uh, the basic law only lasts until 2047 so um, that's uh, no time at all really I guess when you're talking about five thousand years that's right and. I, what's what's interesting about this um, to me is it's a reminder that there's there's no we shouldn't be looking at the at the Chinese leadership through a, a benign lens like they are the real deal I mean they're completely serious and committed to what they're doing with communist totalitarianism uh, it's not as outwardly violent as what was the case with Mao or with Stalin uh, but they're using technology and surveillance. Uh, in order to achieve what could not have been previously achieved by other totalitarian regimes, which I think is the biggest threat. Um, they understand full well the power of technology, uh, whether or not they're able to, um, whether they're able to keep the, the controls on it is an open question, but I think there's no doubt that their social credit system, the, um, uh, the way in which they use tech to suppress people, to monitor people, to surveil people, does take us really, I mean, people say Orwellian all the time, but it does really take us into an Orwellian world where if you're able to fully indoctrinate um, your citizens so they don't believe there's any other. I mean, that, that's really the thing about the ultimate, the ultimate totalitarian regime is the one that convinces his people that there's no alternative. And China is, is, seems to be best able to achieve that compared to previous regimes. I, I go to China every year or two, and I had some interesting experiences in this, in this one. So um, as I said, I was traveling with Stuart Eden, and we were presenting on some blockchain public policy. Um, and Stuart was carrying in um, a bag of a, a full suitcase full of reports. Now the reports were, uh, the report's called a crypto-friendly um, index for Indo-Pacific region. So it's about um, uh, what yeah, governments yeah, yeah, whatever, are pro- whatever, yeah, yeah. Blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. <laughs> blockchain, yeah, Blo- blockchain, <laughs> blockchain. But anyway, so blockchain public policy reports, right? Um, and when you enter China, you, um, and we entered via land through the Hong Kong Shenzhen border. When you enter, you put your, um, uh, you go through immigration, then you put your stuff through a scanner. And we put our stuff, uh, our bags through a scanner and, and the woman points at me and says, what, what's in your bag? And I say, oh, oh, clothes. No, what's in that bag? Oh, um, just some reports. And they go, paper, paper. And for about 10 minutes, so they were flicking through our report now. They had no idea what it was about, happily. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm and, the same, mate. And they were unable to turn to the page that listed China as one of the lowest quality public policy <laughs> environments for blockchain. Fortunately. Which is, thank God. But, um, uh, uh, but it, was, it was basically, are you bringing in bad ideas? Now, um, the irony, of course, is that, of course I'm bringing in bad ideas. 
oh, anti-communist ideas. I'm just bringing them in on my phone or in my head or all that sort of thing. But they wanted to check for, you know, smuggling in bad thoughts. The other thing that I noticed that was different, again, is you used to be able to go and get Wi-Fi in any hotspot you wanted and just sign up. Now you need to have a, a, a Chinese... Um, uh, a Chinese mobile phone number or a WeChat account. The WeChat account is, of course, um, endorsed or there's an identity managed by the government and so forth. So it's certainly, um, they're cracking down on, I don't think they're cracking down on foreigners, but they're cracking down on their own citizens, absolutely. Um, I think when we're talking about sort of the ideology of the Chinese government and also this real attempt to control people, it's worth bringing up the recent attempt in the West to sort of relabel the Chinese regime as somehow being fascist rather than being communist. And the obvious reason for that is that they no longer have the economic ideology of communism. It's no longer a command economy. Um, and they're relying on capitalist systems to keep the whole thing afloat where the Soviet Union collapsed. But I think ultimately that's a bit of a cop-out. It's part of the left trying to come to terms um, with this regime that they can see is doing these terrible things, but they don't want to admit that it's a leftist regime. I think that ultimately the authoritarianism, that deep ingrained um, sort of psyche of trying to control people comes from that Marxist-Leninist communist ideology. And even if it's been divorced from the command economy, it's divorced from some of what may have been its initial ideas, it still ultimately comes back to communism. That's look, yeah. look, look, the, 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 this was being played out in Quillette. I think there was an essay on. Yeah, Quillette. well, Quillette, Claire Lehman has been running that meme that China mm. is a fascist. Um, China is a fascist country. No, it's right there in the title, Chinese Communist Party. And you're right, they are communists, and this is what communism looks like. I would just add to what you're saying because you're 100 right. I don't think. I mean, we say they have a, They've divorced their. Um, their sort of ruling regime and attitude from the totalitarian control of the economy. That's true to an extent, but there is no private sector in China. I mean, every the, the CCP can pull the pin at any time they want. So when, when you're trading with China, when you're doing business with China, you're doing business with the communists. You're not doing business with, um, you know, John Smith, who's a private property owner with the, with a contract and the rule of law and has recourse to a legal system. It's the, I would argue that they've, in a very interesting and sophisticated way, been able to graft on, as Scott said about the speech, they've been they've been able to graft on a, a Maoist ideology onto a 5,000-year-old civilization, which is very interesting. They've been able to do that. They've been able to graft on the communist control of the economy with, a, with by by integration in the global economy, and that's the genius of Xi Jinping. John Gano is an excellent um, observer, but I don't think that's right. I don't think the story is um, Maoism plus 5,000-year-old Chinese culture. I think the change that we've seen over the last decade has been... That was my argument, but I don't, he doesn't say it in those words. Oh, sure, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> we'll defame him anyway. No. <laughs> um, um, I don't think that... Uh, I, I think the big change that we've seen over the last decade is Xi Jinping's um, choice to make Chinese nationalism at the very heart. So grafting on Chinese nationalism onto what had been a, a slow liberalisation. And you can see this in the public policy choices that they've made over the last decade. And there was a very good book published by the Peterson that I read um, while I was over there, the, the Peterson Institute for International Economics. It's called The State Strikes Back. It's the end of economic reform in China. And what, what he's really, um, um, the guy's name is Nicholas Lardy, and we'll put, a, um, put the details up in that in the show notes. Um, but the argument there is that this is what, what has changed has been a really strong national industry 
policy. So in 2013 and 2015, they launched the Made in China 2025 plan. They rolled back some of the um, corporatizations and marketizations of some of the state um, uh, the, the, the the big state corporations and so forth. And, and what we've seen is um, a reversion against that decade or two decades worth of economic reform that started with... Yeah, that's, um, that's my point. With that's my point, though. They'll pull the pin whenever they want. Um, no, and, there, and... There's no there's no sort of free market there. A free market is something that is sort of has um, a, a ring fence around, at least with like a legal and economic ring fence and also a cultural ring fence. Yeah. So, yeah, governments... I mean, governments here intervene in the market all the time. I accept that. But we do have kind of legal ring fence that you have private property and rule of law, which they don't have there. Um, but no, I, I push back strongly against the idea that this is a nationalist thing. This is a... They are a global totalitarian entity that seeks domination as far as possible as all totalitarian regimes have and ha- have always done and always will because that's the only way they're sustainable. They cannot tolerate any diversity of thought anywhere. And so they, they are pushing in their region, they're pushing into our country, they're pushing into other countries because they need to convince people and persuade people and indoctrinate people that their ideological view uh, is the right one and they they are a universal they have universalist totalitarian aspirations but it is it is absolutely the case that there is a now whether it's a extreme chinese patriotism and extreme uh, or chinese nationalism or however we like to describe it that is what we're seeing particularly um, in australia and that's what we're seeing in the in the student um, protests on the pro hong kong and the pro china side we're seeing and that's what happens when you you hop on wechat and you have a look at everybody arguing about China, and this is what happens when you talk to young Chinese people. It's a Chinese nationalism or an extreme patriotism or whatever it is um, that is the that is the big change that we have seen over the last decade, in my I, view. I would sort of argue that maybe the Chinese regime is co-opting nationalism. I'm not sure if that's the driving force between what for what the government itself is doing, but it's an incredibly powerful tool as far as indoctrination, as far as getting people to buy into a political system. We saw that in the first half of the 20th century. So I think- <laughs> Hard to imagine a state I, co-opting nationalism in its own interest. I, I, think it, I think it can be both. I think it can be that um, China is increasingly nationalistic, but that's not some sort of cop-out from the fact that it's still a communist regime and still has these Marxist... Oh, no, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, these, these are all consistent yes, stories. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, but it's um, not, it's this, it's is not, this is not... No. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like, like uh, Stalin was head of a communist international, internationalist universalist regime until Hitler's tanks started rolling towards Moscow and so suddenly it was all, um, uh, uh, you know, yeah. uh, drinking but strongs and Mother yeah. Russia. Communism in one country this eventually is, This is not what nationalism looks like. Nationalism is not internationalism by definition. You know, Germany in World War II was not a nationalist power. It was an internationalist power. That was the problem. It wanted to export its ideology around Europe and the world and China is the same. And the comparison that Andrew Hastie made with China and uh, Germany in the 1930s is correct. They are not a nationalist power. Nationalist powers want to maintain their own internal coherence. Um, they don't want to export their ideology. They're not interested in exporting their ideology. They're not inter- they don't even necessarily have an ideology. They don't have global aspirations. All they want is a Westphalian international relations system based on the nation state. China does not want that. It is not a nationalist power. It is a universalist, totalitarian, communist dictatorship. Indeed. <laughs> let's let's leave that there. I mean, one of the, one of the things you touched on, of course, was uh, the control over the state-owned corporations and even the privately-owned corporations. And um, 
the ability of the state to influence what corporations do. Uh, we have a similar mechanism in Australia and it's called ASIC. <laughs> <laughs> and we might talk a little bit about what ASIC's been up to in the context of the Banking Royal Commission, which it seems like is a never-ending agenda in Australia. That's absolutely right, Scott. So on Tuesday, the federal court dismissed a really significant case that ASIC launched against Westpac to the extent that it also ordered the regulator to pay the banks um, $5 million legal costs. The case is, of course, like a lot of these cases, very involved um, and very technical. But the ultimate claim that the um, judge made was that there's really no reason to believe or that, that that ASIC had set up a new hurdle that wasn't listed in any laws about um, whether uh, about how you assess consumers' income, um, and therefore it had been an irresponsible lender in some way. Um, uh, that is my potted summary. But this is a devastating um, uh, result for ASIC in a history of devastating results. Um, about ten years ago, we had a sequence of court cases where ASIC was slapped down by. Um, Judges repeatedly slapped down. For instance, in the nine, in 2009 against Fortescue, the judge in that case said it's important that allegations of dishonesty be made only when there's a reasonable evidentiary basis for them. Um, in a case against AWB that ASIC was running, ASIC des, um, described the ASIC case or the ASIC um, uh, legal action as uh, oppressive and abuse of process and would bring the administration of justice into disrepute in the minds of right-thinking people. ASIC is not a very good actor in this space. Now, on the left, of course, a lot of people have been saying that um, the Royal Commission revealed how um, soft and um, uh, poorly organized ASIC is. I think that on both left and right, or both free market and progressive sides, we can agree that regardless of whether you think it's hard or soft, it's definitely incompetent. Well, I mean, we've just been talking about the rule of law and what we've got here is an out-of-control regulator that is uh, launching legal actions, um, which three strikes and you're out, fellas. Um, Three times the judges have actually said there's no basis for this at all. Um, That's what it means to be operating beyond the rule of law. And and we shouldn't forget how extraordinary the powers of ASIC are. So the the powers of ASIC and um, uh, the IPA's rule of law project has has looked in – legal rights project, sorry – has looked into this in some great detail. The way ASIC can compel private individuals to give evidence in a way that they wouldn't be compelled if they were – um, uh, taken to a police station, um, their access to the data retention laws, of course, um, that we, we've been discovering over the last couple of months. Um, they, they have an extraordinary array of powers um, and we seem dedicated in this country just to give them more. And I just want to say one more thing on this particular case and then we'll open it up to the panel. Uh, the remarkable thing about the climate that uh, Australian corporations now have to operate in with this out-of-control regulator is... Westpac had originally contested this action uh, throughout 2018, but by the end of the year, I mean, we, we, we're not inside the boardroom, we can't know exactly, but for whatever reason, they agreed to uh, cop a deal with ASIC and pay a $35 million fine. Jointly, they took this to the court, ASIC and Westpac. Westpac just said, yeah, fine, whatever, whatever, whatever <laughs> we, it is. We'd like to move on, please. Yeah, we'd like to move on. Here, you know, we've already written the cheque for $35 million. Can we just move on? And uh, to his eternal credit, Justice Perham uh, said, I can't sign off on this deal because it's not clear what the offence is. 
ASIC hasn't established any offence. How can the court be expected to assess the reasonableness of the proposed penalty if it be left in the dark about what the actual problem is? <laughs> so things have got so bad for corporations that they'll just, they'll just write a cheque to get ASIC off their back. Um, and then, uh, as it turned out, because that was rejected, the, the case resumed and then uh, the same judge finally threw the whole thing out and uh, said some not very kind things about ASIC and awarded costs against them. So. Um, I think it's worth unpacking some of the details of the, this case. So basically what ASIC was um, alleging was that Westpac was using a sort of basic understanding of what people's spending needs would be in order to calculate whether they could afford a loan and they're meant to look at the details of how their um, spending actually comes out in order to determine whether they can um, afford a loan because basically the idea is that if you want to buy a house, you're not meant to make any financial sacrifices. You're not meant to cut spending anywhere else. This is ASIC's position. Just, yeah, the, precisely the same amount of avocado toast as you had the day before you got the loan. Yep. Yeah, and it became it became a joke because the um, ASIC had alleged that there were 260,000 breaches of this um, directive to look at the particulars of people's cases rather than go off this generalised idea of how much people are going to need to spend. And it turned out there was only 5,000 cases where someone had gotten approved that wouldn't have gotten approved through the other method. Um, but the real thing that I noticed in sort of reading news articles about this is the perverse incentives that this has created. So you've had both ANZ and NAB come out and say how they've introduced more and more litmus tests to discover how much money people are spending to make it harder and harder for people to get loans. So banks are now bragging about the fact that they're making it harder for people to get loans because they're more concerned about pleasing the regulator than pleasing their customers or creating new customers. Yeah, I think this gets, to me, this gets down to a couple of really deep fundamental things. One is this is an inevitable consequence when you have things like too big to fail. Right, yeah. because the whole frame—it's the framework that's driving this. The regulators, I take your point, they're incompetent, but they're probably <laughs> acting rationally given their. That's just a general critique I have given, of all regulators, yeah. to be fair. <laughs> but given their given their framework, they're like, you cannot let a bank fail in this country, right? That's what the government's basically saying, and they deploy ASIC and APRA to to make that so. So it's the too big to fail uh, mentality that actually drives all of the, pretty much all the stupid regulations we see in, in like from corporations regulation to macroprudential regulation to these specific diktats are all driven by whatever happens a bank can't fail. Now, that might be true. Maybe if a bank failed, one of the major banks failed in Australia, it would be a disaster. But that's only because of public policy setting up a system where the big four banks are so important. And there's such a, such a psychological... Um, disposition in Australia to to want to have like because these banks have been around forever in some form or another since the 1800s that they're just so deeply ingrained in our psyche that we couldn't possibly imagine not having an ANZ, a Combank, a Westpac, or um, the other one that I can't remember. And so and so and, and so but, but vitally important. But vitally important. So to me, to me, like all these things are really stupid. But you know, until we end up um, until we end up getting past this too big to fail, big four mentality, we're going to be stuck with these with these regulations. There's some also perverse um, uh, incentives here. So um, the 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 fact that they tried to cut a deal is really interesting because um, if you if you read some of the literature that these um, regulators put out, that's actually what they view as best practice. So um, since ASIC 
failed so badly um, 10 years ago in 2008, 9, 10 um, and, and, and lost in the courts. They've moved towards this um, cooperative regulation model that a lot of scholars and a lot of regulatory thinkers have been trying to argue for. And this is the idea that instead of um, uh, there being two steps, you either don't do anything to a company or you prosecute them the hardest through the courts, you should work with them. You should negotiate with them. You should build these um, what, what we call enforceable undertakings, which can sometimes enforce things that um, are well above the, the sort of basic laws that we have, the actual regulations themselves. And so ASIC is, is um, shifted its strategy from um, prosecution to working with the companies. And, and of course, the government's picked this up, which is why we have this idea of putting psychologists into the boardrooms employed by APRA and ASIC um, uh, and all these, all these disgraceful um, corporatist policies. But it, it, it's a reflection of a shift in the way we regulate companies where the government wants, and, and this goes to this goes to your point about um, uh, you know Chinese firms. Chinese firms are so deeply integrated with the state, um, and they've got shadow board members who who might be party members, or you've got to be a party member to be on the board, or various things like that. And we're moving in that in in that direction that you've you've got to have a regulator, and you've got to have a close relationship with the regulator. Otherwise, you can't be viewed as um, compliant or ethical or something horrible like that. And yeah. it is outside the rule of law. I mean, the uh, uh, Scott Pruitt, who took over the federal EPA under uh, Donald Trump, uh, pointed this out that there was, this, as well as you know, in incredibly prohibitive uh, regulations that had been passed by the federal EPA under executive orders, there were there was just this plethora of such consent orders uh, that the EPA had obtained by hounding corporations and also. In some cases, um, uh, colluding with uh, Democrat-controlled state governments uh, who couldn't get laws through their own legislatures, um, the EPA, by agreement, the EPA would sue them, uh, and then the governors of these Democrat-controlled states would would agree uh, to one of these enforceable undertakings. So you had something; it was like quasi-law being written by by collusion, but appearing on no statute book. Yeah, by the administrative state, yeah. I, and, and uh, by design. By, by design, because a lot of these regulators are driven by a philosophy, and that the um, the parliaments and legislators can't keep up anyway. It's it's just too hard for for um, uh, politicians who are elected to to regulate or to make those decisions. So we need to have these regulatory agencies, and we need to load them up with negotiating powers and um, uh, lots of a, a, a large toolbox that they can make these decisions about how the economy is run. And that's reflected in uh, what we call regulatory dark matter. Yeah, of course. Soft law. So uh, Kurt Wallace did some great work here. We're adapted the work of uh, the Competitive Enterprise Institute in the US. And basically regulatory dark matter is a lot of those things you're talking about, all these edicts, all, all these uh, guidance notes, all this other documentation, which technically isn't black letter law. But everybody who's regulated knows full well that they need to comply with it or they know that it gives a, an impression of how the regulator is going to be interpreting laws and therefore the chances of them being prosecuted under certain laws if they do certain behaviour. So it has a real effect on the behaviour of the regulated actors, which I argue is regulation. If a government does something that affects your behaviour, they've regulated you in some way. Um, and he found that for every one page, so Kurt found for every one page of enabling legislation passed by parliament, there was another eight pages of soft law that went through by the by the regulators. We looked at um, ASIC, APRA, ACCC, um, and there might be one other one. 
as well. I can't count to four. I can only get up to three. So no, no, that's fine. Those it's, are the three. It's a three-day To match the three-day, <laughs> to match the three banks. So, but the point being that technically all these things are parliamentary oversight. So technically these can all be disallowed by, this, um, by the relevant Senate, Senate committee. But like you say, they don't have time. They've got other things to do. The administrative state and the, and the regulatory apparatus is just so big um, that it's just actually impossible for any politician, even if they wanted to, to get a handle on what's and, going on. And, and in that sense, what if the state is too big for parliament? Isn't that a disaster for a democracy? What if um, Parliament is just doesn't have the capacity to manage what the state is doing? We saw that the confusion when it came to the federal election campaign, where you had the Banking Royal Commission and basically this ATSIC intervention all being about making it as hard as possible to get a home loan to make sure that the housing market is as stable as possible. And then you had the Liberal Party and then backed up by the Labor Party introducing this policy to allow people to get a home loan with as small a deposit as possible. So because these completely arbitrary decisions being made rather than letting the market um, find some sort of equilibrium, there's just utter confusion rating. Well, I have a house, so this sounds like a you problem. <laughs> Speaking of buying things, Donald Trump wants to buy Greenland. Chris Berg, what's going on there? Speaking of buying things. So That's Donald a, Trump... The real estate deal of all, best of all time. The, oh, so, so this came out a couple of days ago and... Um, uh, the first reporting suggested that um, advisors had been talking to Donald Trump that he was interested in buying Greenland, and the the report said that the advisors were very unsure whether he was being serious or not, and they were genuinely torn. Um, now he's come out publicly since since this reporting has come out publicly and has described it as you say as the biggest real estate deal on earth. As we are talking, Donald Trump has put up two tweets, um, taking it even more seriously pointing out that Denmark is a very special... Because, of course, Denmark um, uh, is the governing um, country for the autonomous country of Greenland, which we'll talk about in a moment. But Denmark is a very special country, Donald Trump writes, with incredible people. But based on um, the Danish Prime Minister's comments that she would have no interest in discussing the purchase of Greenland, Donald Trump is postponing the meeting they are having in two weeks for another time. Um, uh, So (laughs) it turns out that this is turning into a major international incident... Um, the Prime Minister was able to save a great deal of expense and effort for both the United States and Denmark for being so direct. I thank her for that and look forward to rescheduling sometime in the future. Anyway, so we thought, Scott, we thought, let's actually talk about this. Um, uh, Donald Trump has both um, is both being a bit trolly um, and both taking it slightly more seriously than we'd expect him. But so Greenland. okay. But, so but, gr- but this is a real thing. This is a real thing. Let's uh, okay, so cards on the table. Greenland. Greenland right now is a autonomous country within the kingdom of Denmark. It is um, it has been basically autonomous or has had home rule since 2008. It already has U.S. military bases um, in the far north of Greensland, and the United States has repeatedly tried to buy it. So um, the United States has a historical habit of purchasing territory. Um, it tried to purchase Greenland first in 1867. At the same time, it was going to buy Alaska. And in 1946, there was actually money on the table um, when the US government offered Denmark $100 million, and they said no. If you look at a map of the planet from the top, a map of the globe from the top, it's really striking. There are two outliers facing Russia. There's Alaska and there's Greenland. And looking at that, you're like, wow, that that's strategically really vital territory. Whoever has been talking to Donald Trump has pointed this out to him, and um, they seem to be taking it seriously, wouldn't you say, Dan? 
Well, they are, and, and <laughs> there's no reason why they wouldn't take it seriously. It's a vital, as you say, uh, land in, in a strategic perspective. I don't think. I mean, the way Trump goes about it is a bit different, but I don't. <laughs> yep. I don't think these discussions are unusual to be had. I mean, the US is a massive global power. They're these, unusual on Twitter. I think. They're unusual on Twitter, but I, I like it. I mean, it shows what a crack character. I mean, the great thing about Trump is he pulls the curtain behind. He shows people what goes on a little bit in the swamp, uh, which is nice. He's a great character and it keeps us entertained, so um, that's good. Uh, but it's not. I, I think these kind of discussions will be going on all the time in the U.S. government about what you know, where they're what strategic. We can buy. <laughs> well, what we can buy, what we can influence. I mean, this this is great power politics and rivalry. It's exactly what China does with you know what universities are we going to get into? How are we going to disseminate our ideology? America does the same thing. Um, I don't think there's anything unusual about it. I think it's great that Trump's public about it and tweeting about it, and he's. Um, saying, well, I'm not going to meet with you now because you're not even interested in talking about a deal. I think that's, I think it's great. <laughs> and Zach, it's also bringing history back into play. I mean, uh, Dan's right. This this is how things used to be done. This is how the Americans got Alaska, they got Louisiana, they got Florida, they got uh, lots of things that they, they purchased along the way. But it's like uh, ever since 1945 and you know the establishment of the United Nations, suddenly that's it. There's no more of this going around buying countries. It's, it's been crossed off the list of things you're allowed to do. But I think probably the unfortunate difference um, between the historical examples and right now is that it was actually a really good time to buy the Louisiana Purchase. It was a good time to buy Alaska. The US got a really good deal on those sorts of things. The problem that Trump faces... and It's this just is a bad market right now, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem that Trump faces is that he's dealing with a social democratic prime minister who's never going to be seen publicly mm. to give so much territory over to Donald Trump and also the the sort of minerals that are available in Greenland are becoming increasingly strategically important. So the price tag on it is going to be, some estimates are over a trillion dollars. So it's not really practical. And if it was my country, I wouldn't want the government spending all this money on it. But at the same time, it's so, it's so ballsy. There's so much swagger to the way that Trump is doing it. And that's how Trump suckers in classical liberals like us. It's not necessarily what he's doing. It's the way he's doing it and the sort of grand plans. It's a bit like it's a bit like um, going to um, the moon in the 60s as far as completely wasteful government spending, but gloriously wasteful government spending. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I, I, I promise to take this very seriously and um, I think that this is a terrible plan and I don't like that Donald Trump and the Danish Prime Minister would be negotiating with each other, well or not, because there are 60,000 people who live on Greenland. They are an autonomous country. They are moving towards even greater self-autonomy. Ask them. Ask them. We are in an environment of self-sovereignty. We have spent a lot of time talking about the importance of... Um, uh, of love of country and, and and the role that we have as Democrats in choosing whether we're part of the European Union or, or, um, or, or, or whether we're part of the United States or anything like that, this is a choice for the Greenland people to make. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, in fact, they've already voted to secede from the European Economic Community. They uh, have. Uh, Grexit. Quite a few decks. Grexit. Yeah, yeah. Green, green, green exit? Green exit. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, good on them. So maybe, and then, and then Trump could make them an offer. Why does he have to negotiate with Denmark then, not not Greenland? Good question. No, and and and, and some people have um, slightly amusingly pointed out that there are only sixty thousand people. Give them a million dollars each or ten million dollars yeah, each, take it. and then ask them which country they'd like to be part of. But but like every autonomous 
zone in the world or semi-autonomous country in the world, they are seeking independence. And the, the 2008 referendum that they had, which gave them much of the home rule and autonomy that they have now, um, they, they were talking about uh, so, so 2021, if my research is correct, is the 300th anniversary of Danish colonial rule and the independence movement in Greenland wants to be independent by then. So well, this is a bad time not just for the market, but this is also if, a uh, bad time for sovereignty. If Donald Trump's listening to this, I would recommend that he... He is listening to this. To I recommend he get behind the uh, independence for Greenland campaign to use that as leverage yeah, against Denmark. Absolutely. John, that would be John Bolton. Very good. Here you John go, Bolton, there you Here's go, a strategy. Actually, you don't have to go to war to take over things, John Bolton. You can, uh, <laughs> do, you can, you can uh, do these kind of things too. And, and I do want to just close this little segment by saying, actually, this is close all... Close this very important little Very segment. important segment by saying this is all tied up with climate change, of course. Of course. <laughs> because of course it, of course uh, it is. one of the things about the, uh, uh, the uh, climate industrial complex and the... Uh, those who believe that all the science is settled is that uh, they deny that there's been any cycles of warming and cooling in history. And uh, what's obvious to anyone who just thinks about it for a moment is that when the Norsemen uh, went to Greenland, I think it was Eric the Red who led that expedition back in 986, um, they, st they went and stayed in Greenland because it was actually quite pleasant then. This is um, the start of a period called the medieval warm period. Uh, where temperatures were probably about a, uh, one degree Celsius higher uh, than, than they are now. And um, it was quite pleasant. Um, Iceland as well. and Well, relatively pleasant anyway. Still pretty cold. This is pro-Viking propaganda. This is pro... Well, the point is, the Vikings were tough, but they weren't mad. They, <laughs> you know, they, they didn't want to freeze their asses off completely. And, and indeed, further proof that there have been these cycles is as we approach something called the Little Ice Age... Uh, in the, uh, I think, 14th and 15th centuries, um, the records of uh, Viking habitation ceased. They got out of there. It was getting too cold. They, they couldn't, couldn't grow any crops, couldn't do anything useful. And um, so this is further proof, um, if we needed any, that there was this thing called the medieval warm period. Then we went through a cold patch. Then things started to warm up again. So you can actually have global warming without any contribution to CO2. I'm not saying it doesn't make a contribution. Some of this has been written about by uh, the IPA's own Jennifer Marahassi. Um, I will put a link to that in the show notes. And I will also put a link to a terrific new video starring Jennifer and a dress that she made um, to, at the uh, wonderful venue of the Maroochydore Surf Club on the Great Barrier Reef, uh, sea level rises and climate change. And... Um, showed, amongst other things, uh, a photo of her mother standing in the water next to a reef and then revisiting that reef uh, you know, very many decades later. And strangely enough, the water level's about the same. If anything, it's, it's been falling at different times because of various uh, oceanographic events. But I uh, uh, highly commend to you that video from Jennifer Marahassi promoted by the IPA on its website. That's a bit of uh, is that a what culture a, pick? What, what a wrap up! <laughs> what a wrap up! Uh, that's that's a well. If you can plug blockchain, I can plug blockchain. I, I can I can, I can plug yeah, IPA can. videos about climate change yeah. starring Jennifer Marahassi. Um, <laughs> other books and culture picks. What have we got, gentlemen? So I'll I'll start. So um, without uh, re-raising the China story, I read a great book by um, Ma Jian. I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. Called China Dream. He is a China-born 
British writer. It's a short novel. He's um, his writing is now banned in China. He was originally a painter, and he was first targeted by the anti-spiritual pollution campaign in 1983. And then he released a book called Stick Out Your Tongue, which was banned in 1987. But luckily for him, he'd literally just moved to Hong Kong, while, of course, Hong Kong was still a um, British territory. Um, uh, and now he's, of course, in exile, writing um, books in Chinese um, uh, for for Chinese reading audiences, though, of course, I read it in translation, um, uh, about just how corrupt the party is, the um, serious challenges they have, memories of Tiananmen Square massacre and that sort of thing. In fact, he um, uh, he his life intersects with the um, disputes that we're having around Hong Kong as well. Last year, he was appearing in a Hong Kong literary festival until his talks were cancelled because they were concerned about political pushback and then the cancellation was reversed and so forth. So it fits into the, this story. But anyway, so the book is, um, it's a short novel, but it is amazingly good and amazingly interesting. Um, it's a story of sort of corruption and debauchery by a regional Chinese bureaucrat and he's um, in charge of, and this is the sort of magic realism part of it, he's in charge of converting those. Uh, when we sleep, we all have dreams, and they're, but they're, they're all individual dreams. You know, my dreams are not the same as Dan's, not the same as Scott's, not the same as Zach's. Wouldn't it be better, though, if we had the same dream? Wouldn't it be better if we had the China dream, the one that brought us together as a country? Um, this has actually got more political resonance than um, I, I realised as I was reading it because the Chinese dream is a Xi Jinping exhortation from 2013. It's sort of a collective Chinese version of the American dream idea. Um, but anyway, magnificent book and um, uh, a, a really powerful um, critique of the Chinese state and Chinese ideology in the 21st century. Yeah, so I'm talking about Toy Story 4 today, but almost as an excuse to talk about Toy Story 3 because I think it's an anti-communist allegory. Um, Renee and I saw it when it came out in 2010. Basically, the toys um, end up at this daycare centre where they don't have individual owners anymore. They'll all be collectively owned. Oh, yeah. They'll all be shared by everyone. Everyone will constantly get played with. Your owners won't grow up and neglect you because there'll just be constantly new kids coming through. Um, but it turns out that even though it appears at the face level that this is a sort of equality um, utopia, it turns out that not all toys are as equal as possible and there's a regime that ensures that the younger kids who basically destroy the toys, that specific toys go there, and then the um, toys at the top of the echelon get the cushy jobs. Um, so basically, it's a communist regime where it's not true equality, and the narrative is getting back to an owner, getting back to a traditional life. Um, so I went and saw Toy Story 4 to basically see what nine years of Hollywood's descent into SJWism had done to Disney Pixar, and I was um, pleasantly surprised. Um, there's a sort of empo female empowerment narrative with Bo Peep, but that was arguably pretty necessary. The themes are very much aimed at 20-year-olds who grew up with the Toy Story films, the first one having come out in 1995. There's a, um, basically a theme of moving on from nostalgia and a sort of warm, comfy past, basically still living with your parents, and creating a new... Um, a new life and figuring out what you're going to do in life. And also the bring in um, themes of existential dread because there's this 
toy made of um, garbage that has to justify why it exists in the first place. Which is the all, best part of the movie. All, yeah. all things that um, 20-year-olds can really um, relate to. <laughs> Existential. <laughs> but uh, but inevitably, inevitably, I was Googling around and there was a left-wing backlash that even though Bo Peep um, was empowered, because she still falls in love with Woody by the end of the thing, it wasn't really about female empowerment because she still needed a man. And there were complaints that even though this Toy Story has a number of minority actors, those minority actors aren't playing minority characters, despite the fact that... Minority toys. Minority toys. They're playing um, sort of teddy bears and other things. Um, But that's to ignore the fact that the whole premise of Toy Story was that most of the toys are basically 50s toys. Woody Mm. is a... Um, Woody is a cowboy. I certainly know from my experience being born in 1990, no one in the mid-90s was playing with cowboys. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a wonderful review. Thank you. And um, I still won't go see it, but uh, <laughs> now I don't have to. Thank you, Zach. Um, now you've got a really powerful political critique. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, um, no, uh, by pure coincidence, I was reading uh, an old classic uh, Karl Popper's the Open Society and Its Enemies, um, or at least the first volume of which called The Spell of Plato, which was published uh, by that philosopher in 1945. Uh, a book I've tried to read a few times over the years and, and, um, and maybe it's all this thinking about China which has helped so much because um, uh, I have read through it and, and it's a, uh, famously a, a, a takedown of Plato and uh, establishing him, him as the... Um, uh, the the Ur philosopher of totalitarianism. You know, so 1945, uh, Popper's a refugee from Germany. He'd actually found his way to New Zealand of all places, and he's thinking about what was the link between fascism and communism, uh, and he traces it all the way back to to Plato. It is a remarkable work, uh, Rafe Champion. If you're out there, you've been trying to tell me this for years, and you're right. <laughs> um, uh, and just by playing back some of the things that Plato says in his various works, it's like, wow, this is powerful stuff. This bloke has no interest in individualism or individual rights or democracy or anything like that. So someone who's venerated as a philosopher actually does have these really dangerous ideas. And I think the the other lasting thing you take from it, it's, there's, there's a few things running through it, but uh, it happened in Greece first. It was this uh, reaction against the death of tribal society, this existential dread, in fact, Zach, that you get as you as you take on your individualism and you take on personal responsibility after having been in an environment of being subsumed into the, the collective, whether it be a family or a, or a tribe, and you actually have to learn how to live as an individual and get on with other people. And, and Plato was the, the first uh, reactionary, the first to go back and say, well, somehow we re- need to rediscover a collective identity. And uh, it's been downhill ever since. Well, that, that struggle continues to this day. So <laughs> um, get around that one. I think Rafe Champion's actually got some uh, nice little pithy summaries you can access via Amazon. But the book itself I found in very, very readable. Oh, great. Um so I've uh, my culture pick is uh, the cricket because uh, <laughs> I never get to talk about it. So it's great. well, other than on looking forward, you did this the last time. I did. did I also did it on ABC Breakfast. I managed to talk about Steve Smith on there, so it's good. Uh, but I think you know, cricket is a big part of our culture, and the Ashes is a big um, a big event in the cricketing world. Um, and uh, the interesting thing has been Steve Smith's comeback. So Steve Smith uh, Smith was 
previously captain of Australian cricket team. Uh, he was then penalised with a year suspension along with Warner and Bancroft for their cheating scandal, although I think that was a bit too severe and harsh to rob us of one year of the greatest batsman since Bradman, but nonetheless, um, that's history. Uh, and he's come back and he's averaging over 100 in the Ashes series since he's come back, got 100 in his first innings back from suspension. Um, he is just a miraculous individual and player. I think he, he encapsulates a lot of what we like to see in individuals, not just in cricket, but in life in general. He's, he does what he loves. Um, he's passionate. He has a lot of um, hard work. Uh, he's a bit of a, um, if you read accounts of him by his teammates, he's a bit of a weird unit in some respects. <laughs> and um, we love that. <laughs> and we love it because he doesn't, he doesn't care and he's got all these strange mannerisms and quirks when he leaves the ball. He leaves it in a, the most bizarre way you've ever seen. It's just incredibly entertaining, the contest between him and Jofra Archer which unfortunately ended with Steve Smith getting a concussion and now not being able to play in this third test was obviously unfortunate. But it's that kind of sportsmanship, the just great players doing what they love in a contest uh, without... There's no kind of political rubbish going around it. It's just people doing what they love. And it's test cricket is, is kind of a, the, one of the last bastions that we have to extricate ourselves from the day-to-day life. It's kind of a reminder of the slower pace of the past um, you sit there, you watch it, you enjoy it. There's the strategy, there's the weather, there's all these kind of dynamics going on. It's a very unique game and I think this Ashes series um, so far has been one of the most enjoyable series I've watched and I hope that, um, well, I hope Australia wins because it would be miraculous um, and I hope that we actually get through the next three tests without any, any weather issues but, you know, it's England so I won't hold my breath. It rains all the time <laughs> and I, ho- I hope we get through it without Joffre Archer, you know, beaning any more of our... Our players, he's very quick. Yeah, he didn't seem too concerned about it either, so I'm not too sure. <laughs> yeah, he knows what he's doing. Well, yeah. then, then again, Australians have some form in that. You know, oh, was yeah, it we... Jeff Thompson who said, "I like to see blood on the pitch." Oh yeah, I mean, uh, Michael Clark famously said, "We're going to break your effing arm" to one of the, I think, English players in one of the previous series. So, but you know, it's, it's well, banter. That's, what, that's why I thought maybe it was Scott Morrison was um, was a little bit outraged actually at the reaction. Was he was he being a bit precious there? You know, oh, I think pop, the booing. Pop, what what did he say? Well, he the, said. Yeah, the crowd could learn a thing or two from Steve Smith. And yeah. I look forward to him answering his hecklers with bat and ball in hand to bring home the ashes. Yeah, good on him. He also said, I'm extremely proud of Steve Smith. That's good. Like, Steve Smith's great. He embodies a lot of this. And drumming. not just because he comes from the Shire. He comes from the Shire, which is also great. But uh, no, <laughs> but I think that's fair enough. I, I, I don't think the crowd should have booed him after he got hit in the head, you know, and almost died. So I thought that was a bit too far. Booing him normally, I don't care. But after one of the, the greatest batsmen in the world almost dies, you should not be booing him. I sort of agree, but it's like one of our favourite websites at the IPA is, uh, or fan pages, of course, um, are Nuffies on <laughs> AFL pages, which is where you know the, the, the highlights of what Nuffies have said uh, in respect of AFL are, are collected together. And I just thought it was, it was wonderful that the Prime Minister of our country is, is writing something on social media that, that any Nuffy could have written. Yeah. It's, like, <laughs> it's like, you guys, you got hit in the head and you're booing. You know, <laughs> you're awful. Australians would never do that. Yeah. Yeah, true leadership. Yeah, oh, we that's, 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 I don't mind that. Too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's better than regulating something. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You can do this all day. And yeah, look, if, it, if that's literally all he's doing, that's great. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The minimalist, the limited state. That's what, we, that's what we're on about here at Looking Forward. Uh, you have been listening to Looking Forward, which is presented by the IPA. To learn more, to join or donate, please do go to ipa.org.au. A big thank you to our panellists today, Dr Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. Dr Zachary Gorman. Cheers. And our Director of Research, Dan Wilde. Thank you, Scott. big thank you to our uh, producers, uh, uh, Josh Stranger and Adam Schlicht. Uh, We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.